Father God, we just uh, praise you because you're wonderful, you're beautiful. Uh, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to for us to, to connect and see faces of, of people that, that are brothers and sisters in Christ that are um, that, that pray for us and that are um, participating in the work that's going on down here in Guatemala. Thank you for each of their lives and thank you for how you've been watching over them and, and working in their lives and helping them to, to grow and to serve you. And um, so much we thank you for for protecting those that are here from COVID and just lift up each one of them up before you and ask your blessing upon them and that they would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And um, we also just pray for pray for Grace Church and pray for the, the leadership, that you would give them wisdom as well, and that you would allow the church to be a, a light for you in the middle of this darkness. God, as was mentioned, that you would be glorified, that would people would look to you in their doubt and their fear and their lostness with all the confusion and all the anger that is in the world right now and in the U.S. Please just help and heal and just we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name. Well, you all, that was your surprise. So let's add to it. And I asked him to give us a little report. For those of you that don't know Nate Pertzer and Ruth Ann, Ruth Ann started this class. And Nate uh, has been in Guatemala. How long you tell us how long you've been there? He's professor at Seteca, probably the most important Latin seminary. Have over what over a thousand students, right? Correct, over a thousand students, and we've been here eight years, almost nine years. So we left 2011. Give us a report. How things oh, going? Well, thanks so much. It's great to to see all of all of you guys. We miss you. We look forward to to seeing you in person, Lord willing, sometime here. But um, as Ray mentioned, for those that don't know, we. Uh, I serve as a professor, a volunteer professor at uh, Central American Theological Seminary. Seteca is the name in Spanish. And, um, well, this is, I teach uh, biblical language courses this semester, quarter, this quarter I'm teaching intermediate Greek. And I also serve as the coordinator of the master's program, so I'm part of the, the leadership at Seteca that's trying to make wise decisions to navigate through this this uncertain and un, um, uncertain time with a lot of challenges. As soon as the first COVID case was confirmed, which was around March 12th, we closed the seminary down for online learning, which has its... Uh, it's gone a lot better than we expected in some ways, but it also has certain challenges because a lot of the people live in, you know, there's a lot of people in Central America, South America. Those students went back home as they could, and we also have a lot of people in the in the interior of the country where the Internet access is not as good, not as stable. But once the COVID hit, we passed all our courses, our courses to online so I, I teach right now intermediate Greek through through Zoom. Uh, Zoom is everyone's best friend these days. 
Yeah, we do all of our administrative meetings and planning and, and decision making through Zoom. And and so there are there are Zoombies in uh, Guatemala as well. <laughs> We're not the only Zoombies. Zoombies. Oh okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so as I already mentioned, the, how it's impacted the the seminary. There was talk about even closing the seminary in the fourth quarter. I think there's going forward, there's going to be a significant restructuring uh, of the school and whatnot. So we just don't really know what will happen when we're praying. We've gotten uphold. A lot of students are going through some hard times with relatives um, being sick and passing away. And, and that's, that's real hard. You can't even have a funeral, as you guys know, with people in attendance. The restrictions here have been... Um, They've been fairly, fairly strong, I guess. The president outlawed religious services, um, regardless of the number of people. The, it's not like, I consider in the United States, some, it, it kind of happened, but it was more that the people in the churches voluntarily closed. And when they decided that it's time to reopen, they reopened and I don't, really view the governors and whatnot as having authority over that. But, but here there doesn't seem to be as much pushback about um, not meeting. And so there's, there haven't been religious services. Like I mentioned, there was several weekends of a 24-hour curfew. People that are over 60 years old aren't allowed to go and buy food. So there's a couple missionary couples here that I go and buy the food for and take it to their house to just serve in that way. So you guys are serving them in that way as well, and you don't even maybe know it yet. No, you do know it. Um, the, the the borders, we can't leave the county. The, the kind of our equivalent of counties, we can't go to other counties. No international, no, there's not much international travel. Um, no tourists can come, and so it's really impacting. There's people on the streets with white flags begging for food because of the shutdown, and people live so much day to day that it's it's just heartbreaking to see the, the economic effects that I, and the fallout that I think is just starting. Um, it's Rufan and the kids. They've since we do homeschooling, they've pretty much continued through the the in their normal routine. Um, you know, all the schools are shut down, so there's some new kids around that we don't normally see that are, that we're, our kids are making friends with. Uh, but uh, yesterday we had a record number of cases. We had around 500 new cases. There's about 7,000 active. And that probably, maybe doesn't sound like very much, but it is a small country. And, uh, the president has warned that if we have sustained cases in the 400, 500s, that he's gonna sh- completely shut the country down for two weeks. I mean, it's already mostly shut down, only food and banks. Um, but he's gonna do the, probably the 24 hour curfew with just a couple hours for shopping for food if, if we sustain this. So I think that's, that's the basics for the, for the five minutes Ray gave me. I'm probably already over. <laughs> That's all right. Anything to add, Ruthann? We're on summer vacation, so the kids are excited, and I'm excited. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) so they worked really hard. Um, Although it's different for us this summer, this summer will be different because, like everybody, um, they don't play soccer now. 
because the soccer's shut down and we don't go anywhere. They haven't gotten anywhere for three months in the car, so they don't even know what a car feels like <laughs> these days. The kids aren't allowed to go to any of this, any of the open stores, any of the grocery stores. All the malls have been closed for three months and all the outing places. Yeah, just like in the States, you guys have had a lot of similar things. But we have a park, so um, that's been a huge blessing, and we've met some neighbors that we wouldn't normally meet have met because they know, people really never come out of their houses during the normal um, life. But now that people have to get out of their house, if they can, if we don't have a curfew, um, we've gone to the park and met some neighbors and but, of course, we go with masks everywhere with masks and um, kids. It's hard to social distance with kids, so they don't really do that. But anyway. Because everybody has to have a mask. It's um, the president's decrees as well that you have to have masks. Even the kids have to wear masks. Great. Well, thanks so, for... So, Ruthann, are you still uh, able to uh, have a, a way to meet with your... Your friends, your lady friends? Uh, once a week, uh, we're meeting through Zoom again uh, every Wednesday for an hour. And we just mostly pray and share prayer requests because it's a little tricky with kids. Um, normally in the past, we meet at a church and I lead a Bible study uh, with kids. So it's a lot easier. Now it's a little tricky because everybody's in their homes with their kids and their husbands are working from home. So we don't uh, study as much, although we're gonna. Um, I'm gonna start the IMs of John. We're almost done with John. We only um, before the quarantine. We had the last two chapters of John left, and then the quarantine, um, the coronavirus hit, and so we weren't able to finish. Although I have them ready once we can. Um, so we're gonna study the IMs, and it's just gonna be short. Um, we can only do probably an hour. Our kids can only do an hour without it or semi-watching them while we meet. So, But that's been good, and it's good to connect and to pray together. Um, so, yeah, thanks for asking about that. Good. I have, one more, I have one more question. It's an easy one. Is, is Una Amiga still running? Yes. <laughs> now I have those those nenes conmigo. I have with me usually because Nate's working and he starts pretty early so I push the stroller with the baby and Shadrach but there is once in a while I'll get a run by myself but I do a lot of hills so my legs are much stronger than my arms (laughs) (laughs) good when you guys teach whether at the seminary or in your bible study are you teaching in Spanish I don't teach in Spanish because we're geared towards English like American moms all of my classes are in Spanish. So my inter- the intermediate Greek classes that I'm teaching right now are in Spanish. The Romans classes that I taught in the first uh, trimester quarter were in Spanish, and everything's in Spanish for me. So is it hard for you on this kind of in this kind of setting to remember to speak English? Hablar inglés, sí, a veces. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, we speak English in the home, so we get plenty of English too. Okay. But in a teaching setting, it would probably default for me. In a teaching setting, it would default once in a while to, to some Spanish. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Good. Thanks, Nate and Ruth Ann. That's your surprise group. 
Entonces, <risa> I hope we didn't let you down, right? <risa> But we just, I just want to say, you know, that uh, we love you guys. Thank you so much for, for praying for us. Um, thank you for, for partnering and being a part of this. And God's been, God's been faithful. He's protected us up to this point and really opened um, a lot of doors and opportunities. Um, we've handed out, you know, some of the people with the white flags. We've been able to give some food and John and Roman's gospels for them to, to read. And there's a lot of need, but, but God's also working a lot. And, and as it looks like you've been studying about God's sovereignty, he is sovereign and, and we trust in him. But thank you so much. It's great to hear your voices and, and see you. And we miss you and maybe next. Maybe next summer we'll be able to visit. Great. Good. For the Benkeys, the Benke, we have a group from Texas here or a family from Texas, a couple of families. They've got a basketball team, Nate, five boys and Benkeys. They have, they have an ice hockey team with a substitute. They have seven. There's the Benkeys. <laughs> well, <laughs> good to meet you. That's a, those are good teams. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to get our teams together and, and play. Yeah. Um, I see, there's not a lot of ice hockey in Guatemala, but maybe some <laughs> soccer or basketball. <laughs> oh, they love that. <laughs> Anything outdoor related. They're, they love being outdoors 90% of the day. So. <laughs> no, okay, great. All right, guys. We homeschool too. Yeah, they homeschool. Good. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Great. We'll have, to, uh, we'll have to get your your contact and touch base with you separately sometime. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, for those of you that are not familiar, I've got a page on my uh, website that has their more recent photograph on there with all seven. The older one was only with the basketball team. And also some contact information in, in terms of supporting them. If you want to support them, sounds like there's some lots of needs there. Okay, let's get into the Book of Romans today. And I should have Nate teach it because he uh, uses Romans in his exegesis class. So I have to spring it on him, right? He can do it. <laughs> Am I supposed to turn my video off? Everybody else has a video off. Uh, you can leave yours on. Everybody's mainly for bandwidth, but one's not going to hurt anything. You can leave it on if you want to. Oh, well, I can, I can turn it off. Okay. No problem. <laughs> Be the only one. Yeah. <laughs> Today we want to look at Romans 9, and hopefully in the time that we have left, I'll uh, complete... Four verses, which might be, you think, too much to complete. But in the book of Romans, we've been looking at this letter that was written to believers. I take it that uh, he's not writing to the unbeliever, even though some people might think that because of the opening. But in order to equip the believers to understand biblical concepts, particularly in the area of salvation or soteriology, and now in Romans 9 through 11, dealing with a particular issue that would have arisen in the first century after Paul has laid out the provision of God's righteousness for Jew and Gentile. Can you imagine that if you're a Jew, that you can come to God without 
any relationship to the law. You can come by faith and faith alone. God has provided, and not only that, aren't Jews the chosen people? How can God now deal with Gentiles? What's going on here? So Paul is addressing this, and again, I believe to Jewish believers that have come into a relationship so that they are in a position to be able to not only understand, but to explain to other Jewish people, family members, etc., So 9 through 11, Paul is vindicating God's righteousness in that he's defending this idea of extending his grace to the hated and despised Gentiles. What's going on? If you were Jewish, you would be wondering about that. So in chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, he lays out for that Jewish thinker that God has dealt with even the Jewish people in not only a sovereign way, but in a very selective way in that, yes, Israel is God's chosen people, but because God sovereignly chose them, that means that God is totally free in his sovereignty to choose anyone that he so desires, including even the hated Gentiles. And he's also explaining that God, not only within his plan, has chosen Israel and now is including Gentiles, but because Israel has rejected her Messiah, we're going to begin this section in chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, where now Israel is rejected or set aside and under God's discipline. But... Lest we think that God is replacing the church, replacing Israel with the church, Israel still has a future and there is a restoration where God will fulfill and complete all that he's promised, all of the covenants, everything that God has said about the nation of Israel will will come together in the future where Israel will be restored So we have Israel's salvation, which is future from our time frame, future from the church age in general. And I've been reminding you that there is growing anti-Semitism in the world today, a growing attitude, and it's very heavy in Europe, and it's invading our country as well. I don't know, Nate, do you have any of this in Guatemala? I don't know, but there's a growing anti-Semitism. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say that Guatemala is actually very pro-Israel. It was one of the countries that tipped the balance in Israel being able to be declared a nation at the United Nations back in the, you know, 40-ish-ish, 46 7th. Um, and the, there's a lot of pro-Israel parade. There's Sometimes there's really big pro-Israel parades. There's a lot of, because of the large evangelical community that is very so there's not is there's not i haven't seen i imagine there is some um but but the nation as a whole is very pro-israel when the u.s moved the embassy and stuff guatemala followed suit great so that's a brief that's good to hear but the church has a terrible history now i'm talking about the church overall in primarily in europe in uh 
older days, but even in the United States, there's this growing idea, and there has been for many, many years, that uh, the church has replaced Israel. Israel is to be shunned, and sometimes some of them take it to the next step. Israel is even to be uh, persecuted. So there's a lot of anti-Semitism that has grown out from replacement theology. But replacement theology is unbiblical, and the central passage that tells us that is Romans 9 through 11, and particularly chapter 11. So we've talked a lot about that, and today we want to expand and continue in our study where God's righteousness is being vindicated. We spent a lot of time on the sovereign election of Israel, the past sovereign election, to explain the concept that Israel is God's chosen people. God has done this sovereignly, and he has always been selective, even beginning, you might even go back, Paul doesn't make the point, but even the choosing of Abraham out of paganism, out of the nations to create his own nation. And then from Abraham, there is selection even in terms of the children of Abraham. So God has been selective or there has been an elective plan, you might say, for even the nation of Israel. And he's setting the stage to argue that God is free to choose others as well, including even Gentiles. So we're going to begin today, chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, Israel's present. We're going to focus on the present situation during the church age, present national rejection in terms of God's plan and God's working. Not that they're abandoned totally or rejected totally, but there's a temporary discipline that the nation is experiencing that will be brought out in the passages we'll look at. There's two reasons that Paul gives. The first one is they failed to attain the righteousness. So I'm going to remind you concerning that concept and righteousness, the key word for the entire book of Romans. We spent a lot of time looking at the concept in chapters 1 through 8. And Israel failed to attain that, and that's introduced to us beginning in 9.30, but it'll extend all the way to 10.13. Then there's a second reason that he will give. Essentially, they've rejected the gospel message, and because of that, they have been set aside. So beginning in verse 30, we have two concepts, 30 through 33, the pursuit of righteousness and then the stumbling over a stumbling stone that we'll expand on in verse 32 and 33. First of all, they have failed in this pursuit of righteousness. First two verses there, 30 and 31. So we'll begin with those two. And first of all, he talks about the pursuit of the Gentiles. And something very, very strange, very, very unusual has taken place historically. Some of that is recorded in the book of Acts. Paul speaks of that in verse 30. So he begins verse 30. What shall we say then? And the question comes from everything that he's talked about in chapter 9 all the way to verse 29. If God is including Gentiles, if God 
still has a plan for Israel. God has been selective in his sovereign plan in terms of even Israel. What shall we say then? So now he's going to deal with laying the foundation for why God, why God has set Israel aside. And let me just somewhat introduce this whole passage by adding a little bit of balance here. And what I mean by that, if you remember, we've been talking in chapter 9, 1 through 29, and we've been focusing on God's sovereign election. Both concepts put together, actually. The sovereignty of God and God's choosing. And we spent a lot of time looking at that mainly because in uh, our culture, church culture, people have a difficult time understanding that and in some ways seems inconsistent with lots of other passages in scripture and it raises all the issues that we've talked about and I'm not going to review all of that but let me just remind you that the focus of these passages that we've looked at is primarily God and I think chapter 9 first 29 verses tells us what God has done particularly in the past in terms of his purposes focusing on the nation of Israel. For example, in uh, verse 6, he starts out with, but it is not as though the word of God has failed in terms of the plan of God for Israel. So he's going to expand upon how the word of God has not failed. In fact, he's going to run the argument all the way through verse 13. He concludes that, by the way. In fact, we have a lot of Old Testament quotations or allusions or summaries of Old Testament passages, and in some cases even just applications of passages. So he concludes verse 6 to 13 with two Old Testament passages to support what he's talking about. And then he asks another question in verse 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God. So now he's going to vindicate or defend the justice of God. God is perfectly just in setting aside some and choosing others. And we looked at these concepts in terms of God's choosing and the justice of God in relationship to that. So he's going to explain that. And then through 14 through 18, he concludes that with two more quotations. And then beginning, well, even in verse 16, notice the focus. So then it does not depend on man who wills or on man who runs, but on God who has mercy the focus on the mercy of God, the sovereign election of God, depending on his mercy. So all of us need mercy apart from God's mercy. There would be none that would be chosen. None would experience God's redemptive plan. Beginning in verse 19, we have another portion. He asks another question. You will say to me then, why does he, referring to God, still find fault? So see, he's still explaining these purposes and this plan of God. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the verses, but in 19 through 24, we have another portion in there. He concludes again with two quotations. So he has something of a pattern here that he's carrying through to explain God's sovereign plan. And even in the passages we looked at last time, we have another portion there with some more quotations. But the focus is God and his purpose or his purposes, different aspects of it. But now beginning in verse 30, I see a 
somewhat of a change, and we have the reason I title this slide a balance here is I think the focus now is human responsibility. But keep in mind the broader concept or the broader topic, you might say, is Israel. So he's going to focus on Israel's being set aside. He's going to look at it from the human aspect. He's looked at it from the sovereign choice aspect in that this is part of a plan that has been revealed even in the Old Testament. So he quotes from the Old Testament. But now beginning in uh, chapter 9, verse 30, we have this other aspect of why Israel is set aside. They are set aside because of their own volition, because of their own choices, because of their own sins. So we have the aspect of human responsibility. And you're going to see the focus. Now, the focus has been Israel throughout. But uh, you might even see in some of the specific verses, for example, 31, but Israel. So he's going to talk about Israel. Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So Israel is responsible for a response. And we'll develop that as we get into the passage. Beginning in verse 10, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God or to God for them, them, Israel, same context, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, who? Israel, but not in accordance with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. See the human responsibility in terms of Israel, 10 through 3. Verse 16, however, they, who's the they? Same context, Israel. They did not all heed, and notice their response. They did not all heed the glad tidings for Isaiah says. So now he's going to quote from Isaiah. And you could look at the last part of chapter 10, beginning in verse 18. But I say, surely they, who is this? Israel. They have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. And then he's going to expound upon their hearing in the Old Testament, verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And then another quotation to explain that concept. Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. See the shift in emphasis? 9, 1 through 29, what God has done sovereignly in the past, and now beginning in verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, Israel's response. And it's because of Israel's response, not solely because of what God has set forth in eternity past. So he puts together these difficult, that Difficult concepts that are hard for us to put together, the sovereign plan and the sovereign election of God and the human responsibility to respond to that. And if that's not enough, an interesting characteristic of particularly this section, we have mention of belief and or faith 13 times. So in chapters 9 through 11, 
The words, both in the noun form and in the verb form, occur 13 times within this passage or this portion, beginning in verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, and only one other time outside of this passage within chapters 9 through 11, and that's the one in uh, 1120. We won't look it up for now. So we have the noun form, beginning in verse 30 of chapter chapter 9. What shall we say then, that Gentiles did not pursue a righteousness, attained, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by pistis, which is by faith. Then verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it. This is Israel. They did not pursue it by faith. 10.6, the righteousness based on faith. Verse 8, I won't read it. Verse 17, the noun form. And if that's not enough, verse 33, we have the verb form, 933, 10.4, 10.9-11, 10, verse 14 occurs two times, verse 16. So in all, 16 occurrences of what man is to do, what man, how man is to respond. And notice it's apart from works. It's on the basis of trusting and on the basis of believing. So this kind of emphasizes through this passage the concept of man's response or more broadly human responsibility. So some of you have asked a lot of questions as we've gone through the sovereign plan. We've tried to answer all of the issues relating to sovereign and election, God's choosing. All of those passages are true. All of those passages we can believe. All of those passages we can be encouraged that God has a plan and we can uh, praise him and understand that in his grace, he has chosen us. And in terms of those that he has passed over, we can trust that he is also wise. He's also just. Uh, he's also good. And in that plan, we may not understand all the details, but we know that it's all working to ultimately glorify him. And now the area that we are more familiar with and comes easier to us is human responsibility. So that's going to be the focus. So we ask the questions, what shall we say then that Gentiles, and if you were Jewish in the first century and even a Jewish believer, this would be difficult. Gentiles were hated. Gentiles, in fact, uh, when Paul is Going through Romans 1, you know, they're in the background praising God and yelling hallelujah and excited that Paul is condemning the Gentiles, as as Romans 1 uh, very clearly does. The Gentiles, and you see in that passage, who did not pursue righteousness, what's going on? They They did nothing. In fact, they were far. They were leaving. They were in the opposite direction. They did not pursue righteousness. And lo and behold, what happened? They attained righteousness. In fact, Charles Hodge, in his commentary, he says concerning this concept, what to all human probability, in other words, anything from the human perspective, and particularly from the Jewish human perspective, what to all human prob probability was most unlikely to occur actually took place. In other words, the most unprobable of events 
and especially from a Jewish perspective, Gentiles came into a saving relationship with the one true God, the God of the Old Testament. S.L. Johnson, in one of his teachings, kind of emphasizes the same thing, but he adds another aspect here. In other words, from the divine perspective, it shows us what we've been talking about all along. It shows us that uh, salvation is initiated from start to finish by God himself. In fact, we looked at passages from the book of Romans. There's none that seeks after God. And the Jews would say, certainly not the Gentiles. They would not pursue God. They have no interest in spiritual things and certainly not in the God of the Bible. They may pursue their idols and their idolatry, but Gentiles are not going to pursue God. And yet Paul is saying, those who did not pursue righteousness... In their depravity, none seeks after God. The most unusual thing, Gentiles attained righteousness. That's the latter part of Romans 1 through 8, particularly beginning in uh, Romans 3, where both Jew and Gentile are locked into not only depravity, but have no way of attaining righteousness apart from the finished work of Christ. And that's what he explains. And righteousness comes by faith and faith alone. And the Gentiles who did not seek it somehow attain it. So very puzzling if you're a Jew here. So let's take a look at this concept of righteousness just by way of reminder. Remember we talked about dikaiasune, very common in the book of Romans and all of the forms that are related to it. The other words, this is one of the noun forms, but there's also verbal forms translated a little bit differently in the English. But they all have this idea of righteousness. And notice the stress in this passage in 930 through uh, the last occurrence in this section here, verse 10 of chap- chapter 10 occurs 11 times, and it doesn't occur anywhere else in chapters 9 through 11, so the focus is on this righteousness, and particularly how Israel uh, did not attain it. We're introduced to this, and immediately here in verse 30, how the Gentiles attained it. So it occurs several times, in fact, three times in verse 30. I'll show it to you again in a moment. Does anyone remember how the word is used, particularly in the book of Romans? Somebody remind us. The primary usage in terms of, let me give you a hint, or maybe I don't need to. Anyone want to respond? How is the word dikayasune and even uh, the other words in the word group? What about in relationship to God? That's an easy one. You guys are shy this morning. Justification. That's the product of the outworking of righteousness. Justification has a righteous aspect to it. But in terms of God, what is righteousness? It's one of his perfections, one of his perfections. And in terms of man, there is none righteous. So none of us have this attribute or this standing 
But in terms of man, what is righteousness? How would you uh, describe righteousness? Any other comments? Sanctified. Well, it has an idea of setting apart, but that has uh, other aspects as well. Somebody else was going to comment? Forgiven. Well, you're talking about justification. That's the negative aspect of justification, forgiveness. Sure. Faith in Christ. Well, that's how you receive justification and righteousness. But it deals with what? A right standing. We need to go back and start over in Romans chapter 1. Yes, let's do that. Start over. (laughs) (laughs) Right standing before God. So those are the, that, those are the basic concepts in relationship to God. He is the standard. He is that perfection. He is perfectly righteous. Man does not have righteous. In fact, anything that we try to do, you'll probably remember this Isaiah passage. Anything that we try to do to attain righteousness is as what? In the eyes of God? Filthy rags. Yep, filthy menstrual rags, the Isaiah imagery. The only way to obtain a right standing before God is by faith and faith alone. So notice that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, there's the word, a right standing with God, they attained a right standing before God. And lest you have forgotten and... Paul is aware that it's been a long time since we've been in some of the specific passages in Romans 3 through the rest of chapter 8. So he says, so that you are clear, even for the third time, even the righteousness which is by faith. In other words, the way that you enter into a right relationship is by faith and faith alone. So we have the first occurrence in this section of the the idea of response, or the only proper response is the exercise of faith. And we are imputed righteous. Remember we talked about the concept of justification, the imputation, in other words, the granting of righteousness, not the becoming righteous, that's a process. And we looked at that process, chapter 6 through 8, and somebody mentioned the sanctification aspect. That's where we grow to become more and more Christ-like and or reflect more and more of that righteousness that we have been declared. So that's a little brief review of the concept. So the Gentiles pursued it or did not pursue it and obtained it. Because God initiated, God worked in them, and we could even say God chose them, and I would say individually, even though I spoke of a debate in that area, even within our conservative circles, I believe individually God pursued Gentiles, some of us are amongst them, and went through the entire process of God's saving work. We've looked at that in Romans 8, predestining, calling, all of the aspects, justifying on the basis of faith and faith alone, and then even looking ahead to ultimate glorification. So Gentiles that did not pursue it, obtained it, 
Israel pursued it, but what happened to them? So part of the sentence here, but Israel, so the contrast, pursuing a law of righteousness. Now that's kind of an interesting little phrase there, even in the Greek text and commentators spend a lot of time discussing it and what does it mean? Maybe we'll have Nate explain it to us. There's different options here. Any suggestions, Nate? Oh, I think you're doing a great job, Ray. <laughs> the, uh, you're not going to let the, me punch. Uh, just, uh, I my thought, my thought would be that it's the, you know, pursuing righteousness through the law, that the law was going to give them a right standing before God. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And some of the other options kind of camp on the law aspect and others on other different aspects. I won't bore you with all the different options there and views, but basically I think Nate summed it up pretty well. And I think it's supported by what follows here. Ray, can I, can I just interject? Sure, Maddie, go ahead. I was raising my hand, but I guess you didn't see it. Yeah, sometimes. And I don't know how to lower, lower my hand. There you go. There you go. So basically, so Paul is, um, obviously he's contrasting these two issues and the Gentiles had no basis for a practice of righteousness, right? So they had no self-righteousness. Um, but Israel had a lot of self-righteousness, right? Because they thought that following the law made them righteous. And so on that account, I think it makes the Gentiles um, a lot more receptive to receiving God's mercy because they know they have nothing to offer, right? Whereas Israel, um, as a nation, um, thought that they were something really special. <laughs> and, so, they, and they were, but not in a self-righteous way, yes. Go ahead. My turn. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maddie, are you done? Yeah, I... I'm, I thought I made my point, but, um, okay. so it's just the contrast between Gentiles who, who have no righteousness of their own and they know it versus Israel who is convinced of their own righteousness before God, but it's not really righteousness, right? Right. 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 Go ahead, Jim. Well, uh, just to, it's kind of a familiar terminology in a way, but, uh, Israel was trying to attain what we might call positional righteousness through a system of laws rather than faith. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, that's the contrast that Paul has laid out in first eight chapters. And now he's just applying it basically to Israel as the explanation. We'll get to that later. Uh, the explanation why they were set aside. So they pursued a righteousness based on law or through the law, and the text tells us did not arrive at, uh, did not revive at that law or that methodology of trying to obtain righteousness. And as Maddie has pointed out, they had a lot of self-righteousness, so they had an accumulation of filthy rags in terms of God. And I think that blinded them to some extent. In fact, chapter 11 is going to allude to a period of blindness as well. Uh, maybe someday right. we'll and, get there. And James, you know, and we go to James, right? I know you're staying in this book, but James 
tells his audience that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Israel was prideful in their self-righteousness, whereas the Gentiles uh, were humble because they knew they didn't have any before God. And you're speaking in general in terms of those that are responsive to the gospel message, yes. Yes, that is correct. And also, James also points out, if you're trying to pursue righteousness through the law, then you have to perfectly live 100% all of your life, because if you break one aspect of the law, then you violated it all. That's also in James. So Israel failed in their pursuit, and not only did they fail in the pursuit, but they failed by stumbling. That's verses 32 and 33, and Paul refers to their stumbling over a stone. Now, why did they not attain it? Paul asks us the question, and then now he's going to proceed to answer it, because they did not pursue it by faith. And essentially what he's encapsulating here is everything that he's talked about in Romans 1 through 8. So they have missed out in terms of receiving the righteousness that God has provided. And the alternative of faith, but as though it were by works. And like we just said, James tells us, there's no way that we can reach it. It'd be like trying to swim from Los Angeles to Tokyo. You might start out, but you'll never make it because it's beyond human capability. And then he introduces this, this Old Testament concept that adds to this idea. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And you're probably familiar because there's a, Isaiah passage that's quoted not only in uh, verse 33 here, but it's quoted in several passages. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ even quotes uh, one of these passages in uh, the gospel, particularly in Matthew and in the parallel passages. When Jesus talks about the setting aside of Israel, this is a passage that he goes to. So it's very natural that Paul also talks about this stumbling block or stumbling stone. And to give you an image here, I think I took this one in 2017. We visited an area near the uh, site of the Antonia Fortress near Temple Mount there, where it's believed that Jesus was on trial and there were several stones like this. But this is very common in Israel. So these uh, stones, this would be the imagery that Paul is raising for those particularly not so much in Rome, but in Israel, the Jewish people. And you see limestone stones, and these date back to the first century, very common. In fact, there's a person at the top of the slide there about to stumble over the stumbling stone. Maybe not. But that gives you kind of an idea of the imagery that would have been present in the time of Christ and certainly in the time of Paul as well. And in verse 33, not only is it just a broad general stumbling stone, but 33 identifies the stone as Messiah himself. And he quotes a messianic passage. So verse 33 goes back to the Isaiah passage. 
Did you say something, Dave? Yeah, the rock of offense. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> right. It's in the passage. So just as it, as it is written, and if you look it up, it's in Isaiah. And it's possibly a combination of two passages, Isaiah 8, 14, the rock of offense and stumbling stone, and then uh, verse 28, 16, which is also alluding to the the stone, the stumbling stone. And in that context, it's the cornerstone. And it also concludes with the last part of the verse there. So probably a combination of two verses is the context. And again, if you remember the context of Isaiah, we talked a little bit about this in an earlier quote that we saw, what was it, last week? The uh, northern kingdom that in some of the passages Isaiah is addressing was being threatened by the growing, powerful Assyrian empire, and Assyria was going to invade, and what the northern kingdom desires to do is to align itself with Egypt. And this is what you do when you have a military threat. You align yourself with your allies or you try to find allies. And what Isaiah is doing is confronting the nation for their idolatry and giving the reasons why they're under Assyrian threat is because of God raising up a people to bring judgment, essentially. And any alliance with any other nations is not going to be helpful. And what they need to align themselves with is with the Messiah himself or with God himself. So he gives a messianic hope that that's their only hope, align themselves with the things of Messiah, so he gives them this messianic passage. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And this is to Jewish people. Messiah is going to be a stumbling stone. He's going to be a stone of offense. They are going to be offended by a man that comes and dies on a cross. How can he be the Messiah? They're going to stumble over him. That's the whole point here. Now, Isaiah is predicting, I think, a coming of a Messiah and looking down the way, but he's applying the concept to uh, the ten, at least the ten tribes to the north, encouraging them to abandon their idolatry. Now, I showed you some stones all over Israel And since I've got them on file, here are some more that date back to the first century. I think that's Linda and Dennis in the red there. But remember, does anyone remember where this was taken? Recently excavated, giving us a lot of insight into... City of David. City of David, and specifically... Isn't it the Pool of Siloam? Yes, the Pool of Siloam. And like I said, this has only been recently excavated in the last five years or so. And notice the stones, very common imagery. Limestone, very common in the nation of Israel. Temple Mount, made out of the same stones, except huge. And the Isaiah passage speaks of Christ being the very cornerstone. So here's some upper cornerstones to give you kind of the imagery there. What kind of stones are these with the characteristic border? Hera. 
Herodian. Herodian stones, very common. So these date back to the days of Herod, first century and before. And these are Temple Mount, the southwest corner, actually. And verse 33 ends with a hopeful thought. He who believes in Messiah, in him, will not be disappointed. Almost an understatement concept that will be expanded not only by Isaiah, but certainly, obviously, everything in the New Testament in the coming of the Messiah. And those who believe, there's the verbal form of the word for faith, those who believe in him will not be disappointed. So Paul is taking a passage that Jews would have been familiar with to explain what happened to the nation of Israel. Corporately, they stumbled. Corporately, they were offended by Messiah. Now, all of this, by the time Paul writes, all of this has already happened. They've already rejected their Messiah. And when Paul is writing, he is anticipating, and we'll see some some of this in some of the other passages in chapter 10, he's anticipating a judgment, much like what the ten tribes experienced in uh, the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. So also in 70 AD, Paul, I think, is anticipating that there's going to be a future, short future judgment in or 70 AD. But there's this hope. Fellow Jews, reach out to your unbelieving Jews. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. He will not be a stumbling block. He will not offend. Trust in him. There's hope only in Messiah. So Paul is beginning this portion with a little warning as well as a little bit of of hope concerning Israel, but he's laying the foundation to explain why Israel is set aside. He's going to add to that in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, that we'll look at next week and expand upon Israel's failure. And one of the things that we can think of in terms of an application for us Israel tried to attain righteousness by its own self-righteous works through its own way, ignoring the means by which God provided. And for us, it is so important to try to do the things of God, God's way, not our own way. So you can uh, use that as an application. Any further comments before we have a closing prayer? Ray? Yes, Isn't Israel still trying to do that to this day? Not only Israel, but every unbeliever. It's a characteristic of human nature to try to do something to please God. Yes. And certainly Israel, with a history and with with a desire, probably, to gain a standing before God, is still seeking self a a self-righteous way. And there's a an added blindness that chapter 11 will discuss as well. Any other comments? You know, a simple example of that, even among ourselves, uh, is the idea that you have to, for example, have be water baptized to be saved. Yes. That, and- that's where it, I think it goes back to this idea of a work. Uh, 
it's as a we we it's as a work. Yes. We're trying to arrive that way. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of other ways as well. This is our human tendency. This you is see not- that way. That's when we we still fall for the same lie that Satan brought to Eve. Did God really mean it like this? And so we look at it, we reason things out, and we come up with the wrong conclusion every time. Every time, yes. Anyone else? Before we have a closing prayer, is Nate still there or Ruth Ann still there? One of you want to close for us today? My pleasure. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you once again for the technology that um, we have available so that we can um, meet safely to discuss your word. We thank you, God, for the freedom um, that we have in the United States to, to be able to meet and uh, to preach your word. Even though we see some of those freedoms eroding, it still is uh, great compared to other nations like China, and we pray for, for those who are are being persecuted in other places around the world, like North Korea, Iran. Father God, up, uphold them, um, protect them, give them strength to, to not deny the name of your son. And Father God, we thank you for this beautiful passage that we've been able to see. Uh, Lord, your, your love is just unbelievable, and we thank you that you did pursue us when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, and how... While we were enemies of, of yours, that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you so much that the righteousness, the right standing before you is only based on the faith in him. God, because we are unrighteous, we sin and we definitely don't deserve it. And only his perfect work can make us right before you. Thank you so much that, that even though as, as Gentiles and not part of the Jewish nation, that we were going away from you that you uh, sought us out and we thank you for your work in our lives and we pray that you would continue to transform us into the the glorious image of your son. Uh, We thank you for this time and for each one of the people here um, and just pray that you would be with us this week. Give us boldness to do things your way and to share about Jesus to those who do not yet know him or believe in him. And we pray you would open their hearts as well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, any last goodbyes, particularly the Pertzers? There's Ruthann again. I thought she was going to leave. Was here. <laughs> Thanks, you later. Good to see you, Nate. Hey, great to see you, Jeff. Denise, looking great. <laughs> we love you. Have a great week. Thanks, Ray and Dave.